Welcome to the show, folks. We've been going through a synchronized study of Matthew, Mark, Luke, and John, and last time we kind of hit a milestone. It was the one-year anniversary of Jesus publicly beginning his ministry. Of course, he was baptized at the Jordan River. God's voice, the Father's voice, came out of the sky, declaring him to be the Son of God. Then he made his way up to Cana of Galilee, performed a miracle there, but it was done in secret. The very first public act as the Messiah, the prophesied Messiah, was the Passover festival in which Jesus went up to Jerusalem and threw out the merchants out of the temple court. That was on a Passover. After he ran out the merchants from the temple court, John the Baptist was arrested. The king didn't like the world being constantly reminded by John that he was having an affair with his own brother's wife. The religious leaders didn't like him either because when they went out to check him out, John called them brood of vipers and sons of Satan. But John went to prison, and Jesus' fame exploded as he continued to perform miracles. And on his way to Galilee, he took a detour and walked all the way up to Sychar, where he met a Samaritan woman there at Jacob's well. The text in John's Gospel gives you the feeling that this was something that was very heavy on Jesus' heart. It said that it was necessary for him to go there. The King James said that he must needs go to Samaria. When he got there, he ran into this woman at Jacob's well who was getting water at an unusual time of day. The women usually went out there in the morning to get water, but she chose to come at noon. And it turns out that she's somewhat of a social outcast. She's been married over and over and over again. Now she's currently shacked up with some guy that she's not married to. But as she comes up to get water, Jesus asks her for some. And that kind of impressed her because she was a Samaritan woman and he was a Jewish man. See, Jews didn't have anything to do with Samaritans because of a long history of segregation and racial tensions and prejudices. It's a long story. She said, what's this all about, a Jewish man talking to a Samaritan woman? And he told her, well, if you knew who this was who was talking to you, you'd ask him for water instead. And as they continued this conversation, she finally began to realize that he wasn't talking about liquid water. He was using it as a symbol for the Holy Spirit. He told her that if she had asked, he would have given her living water that would bubble up inside of her, becoming a spring of water for eternal life. And that's when she finally calls him. You know, okay, I'll bite. Give me this living water that never ceases, so I won't have to keep coming back to this well every day. And he said, all right, go get your husband. She said, I don't have a husband. And he said, no kidding. For you've had five husbands, and the man you're with now isn't your husband. And at that statement, she realized that this was no ordinary stranger. She said to him, sir, you must be a prophet. And then with that assumption, she immediately brought up what was the biggest religious debate of her day. She said, you Jews say that we have to worship in Jerusalem, but our fathers worshiped here in these mountains. And Jesus said, well, that's superficial. It doesn't matter where you are. God is a spirit. He's everywhere. So you don't worship the Father physically in one place or another. You worship him in spirit. And then she said, well, one of these days the Messiah will come and he'll explain all of this to us and make it clear. And then Jesus said in a way that only Jesus could. He said, I who now speak with you am he. She then immediately dropped her water bucket, ran into town. She grabbed a hold of as many people as she could find, screaming, The Messiah's here! It's the Messiah, the Christ! He told me of everything I've ever done! So the town ran out with her to meet him, and they invited him to stay with him for a couple of days, which of course he did. He stayed with them for two days, and they all got saved, folks. 
All this excitement in the little town of Sychar, which means purchased, by the way. So after this little detour, Jesus heads up to Galilee, and he proved his deity when he healed a nobleman's son from a distance, proving that he isn't just a prophet with healing power, but God himself in the flesh with command over the laws of physics, even from a distance. Then Jesus made his way back to home turf in Nazareth, and he spoke at a synagogue there, and he proclaimed himself to be the one prophesied about in Isaiah chapter 61. But then he told them that he already knew in advance that they wouldn't accept this, no matter what he did to prove it. So he made it known to them that he had no intentions of performing any miracles in that town. And everybody there in the synagogue, were, <laughs> they just lost it. They were livid over this, and they became a vicious mob and pushed him up to a cliff to throw him headlong down over it. But then the scriptures say that he passed through their midst and went away, whatever that means. Then he left Nazareth and made his way up to Galilee, and then he preached a sermon on the sea from Peter's fishing boat. After the sermon, he told Peter to lower his nets in for a haul, but Peter told him that they'd already been fishing all night long and didn't catch anything, but nevertheless, on your word, okay, fine, we'll lower them again, see what happens. And when they did, the nets were so full that the boat almost sank, and the nets almost broke. And this was the event that finally sold it for Peter. He knew that the only way that this could have happened was if the fish themselves had jumped into the nets on purpose in compliance with an order that only God could have given to them. So this is when Peter, Andrew, James, and John, all of them were finally on board. And then they leave everything behind and follow Jesus. Then when they got to a synagogue there in Galilee, they encountered a demon-possessed man who screamed from the depths of his throat, saying, Leave us alone. What have you to do with us? Are you here to destroy us? We know who you are. You're the living Son of God. But Jesus said, Shut up. Come out of him. It did. And that's all she wrote. And because of this, everybody there got really freaked out. Because Jesus even had authority over demons. Even demons obeyed his voice. That spooked people. Then Jesus went over to Peter's house and healed his mother-in-law, who had a very bad fever, a deadly fever, in fact. But after Jesus was through with her, she immediately got up, as though she had never had the fever to begin with. And then people from all over town made their way to Peter's house, and Jesus stayed there all night long, healing people of all kinds of diseases, infirmities. Many demons were cast out as well. And Jesus healed a man at Peter's house who was paralyzed, but before he did, he saved him from his sins. This guy who was paralyzed showed a lot of faith to get himself in front of Jesus. Peter's house was crowded. You couldn't even get in through the front door because it was so crowded. This man who was paralyzed had four friends carry him up on a stretcher. They carried him up on the roof, removed enough tiles to make an opening, and then lowered him down on the stretcher, laying him right in front of Jesus while he was teaching and healing others. Jesus accredited that act as a bold act of faith. Because the guy didn't hope he would get healed, he knew he'd get healed. Otherwise, he wouldn't have gone through the trouble. He not only showed confidence in Jesus' ability, he showed confidence in Jesus' willingness. It says that it was because of this man's faith and confidence in God through Jesus that he did these things. So before Jesus healed this guy of his physical paralysis, he saved his soul and said, Take courage, son, your sins are forgiven and the penalty remitted. Well, some religious leaders heard that and didn't like it because they knew that only God can forgive sins. No man has that kind of power or authority. Any man who thinks he's got that kind of power and authority is either self-deluded or insane. 
But the Old Testament, specifically Daniel, Ezekiel, and Isaiah, spoke of God's future rule over the planet Earth as a being who, when they saw him, they noticed that he looked human. God took them into the future so they could record their prophecies of the coming Messiah. Actually, the second coming is what they saw. And it says they saw one coming from the clouds who looked like a son of man. He looked human. That phrase, looked like a son of man, is what was actually written. So as time went by, whenever people talked about the coming of the Messiah, one of his titles was the Son of Man, because of the verbiage in the Old Testament. Prophecies concerning Jesus' birth said of his mother, A young woman who is unmarried and a virgin shall conceive and bear a son, and shall call his name Emmanuel, meaning God with us. So Jesus isn't just a prophet, he's God with us. He's the only man who can forgive sins and remit their penalty because he's God in the flesh. The one who looks like a son of man to Daniel and Isaiah, he's the one standing here telling the paralyzed man that his sins are forgiven and their penalty remitted. The religious leaders didn't get it. They thought Jesus was just another prophet like Moses or Elijah. God wielded all kinds of supernatural power through them, but at no time could Moses or Elijah forgive someone's sins and remit their penalty. So when they heard Jesus talk as though he could, that bothered them. They said to themselves, this man speaks blasphemy. It's easy to verbally say out loud, your sins are forgiven and their penalty permitted, but who can really forgive sins and remit their penalty except for God alone? Jesus heard that and said to them, what's easier, to say to a paralyzed man, your sins are forgiven and their penalty remitted, or to say, get up and walk? So that you may know that the Son of Man, see there's the tip-off, he's using that Old Testament title of himself to give them a clue. So that you may know that the Son of Man has authority on the earth to forgive and remit sin. He then turns to the paralyzed man and says, Get up, pick up your bed, and walk home. The man instantly got up, a man who'd been paralyzed, folks. He got up, picked up his bed, and walked all the way home, praising and thanking God all the way. Well, the religious leaders weren't satisfied, because later they found Jesus enjoying a banquet with his new disciple, Matthew. And Matthew was a former tax collector. I say former because he quit his job to follow Jesus. He was excited about this new venture, this new relationship. So he threw Jesus a party and invited all of his friends. So Jesus is reclining at the table with Matthew and all of his buddies. But because of Matthew's former vocation, his friends were notoriously known throughout the community as sinful people. And the religious leaders were the very first to bring this up. As Jesus is having a good time socializing with these folks, the religious leaders addressed Jesus' disciples. Now notice they didn't go to Jesus, but they said to his disciples, Why does your master eat and drink with people who are preeminently sinful? Jesus heard it and responded. He said to them, It is not those who are strong and healthy who need a physician, but those who are weak and sick. I came not to call the righteous to repent, but sinners. Now, when we read that, we might not notice the sarcasm here, but Jesus gave them a loaded statement because one of the most famous passages from the Old Testament was where Isaiah said of man's righteousness that to God they are as filthy rags. And that's the cleaned up King James version of that verse. That's not the version that was known to the people of Jesus' day. The original Hebrew said used minstrel cloths. God's view of what we would consider to be our own accomplished goals of righteousness is something that is disgustingly repulsive to God and makes him sick. So this little quip of Jesus' to the Pharisees is sort of a backhanded insult towards them. I came not to call the righteous to repent, but sinners. See, he knows that they know. The label sinners actually applies to everybody. We're all sinners. But if you don't think you're a sinner, if you think you've got all the answers, if you think you know everything and you've got your act together and everything's just perfect, then you don't need me. 
And Jesus didn't make a defense for those he was eating and drinking with either. They were every bit as bad as the religious leaders claimed. But they did have one thing in their favor that apparently the religious leaders didn't. When God looked down on them from heaven, he didn't see used menstrual cloths. He didn't see self-righteousness. Instead, he saw weak and sick people who needed a physician. And don't forget, Jesus was invited to eat and drink with them. That's why he was there. The Pharisees didn't invite him to eat and drink with them. Jesus could have answered their accusations with that. Why do you eat and drink with them? Well, because they invited me. I'm still waiting for your invitation. And that's really what's at the heart of all this, folks. Matthew and his buddies, in spite of all their wrongdoings, in spite of their lifestyles, they weren't so short-sighted that they didn't recognize their own need of Jesus' company. The Pharisees, however, were too self-assured of themselves and too arrogant to recognize that need. So they lost that argument and did what all skilled debaters do when they lose an argument, and that's changed the subject. They said, well, the Pharisees and their disciples and the disciples of John the Baptist are currently praying and fasting. Why aren't you? And Jesus said, can the wedding guests mourn while the bridegroom is still with them? As long as they have the bridegroom with them, they cannot fast. But the days will come when the bridegroom will be taken away from them, and then they will fast in those days. See, Jesus used that title that John the Baptist gave him, since they're the ones who brought John the Baptist up. If you remember, before John was arrested and he was still baptizing folks, once more people started flocking to Jesus after he began his public ministry, John's disciples got upset. But John told them, hey, this isn't a bad thing. This is great. I did my part as the groomsman to announce the arrival of the bridegroom. Now that the bridegroom is here, I must quietly decrease. So Jesus tells these religious leaders the wedding guests can't mourn while the bridegroom is still with them. There'll be plenty of time for mourning and fasting when the bridegroom is taken away, and he will be taken away. Jesus is hinting at what's coming. He will be arrested, crucified, and buried in a tomb for three days. There's going to be a lot of mourning and fasting when that happens, but not now and not yet. The wedding guests can't mourn and fast while the bridegroom is still with them. Now, while all of this is happening, there is a growing concern coming from the religious leaders over what in the world are they going to do about this guy. So they start hanging around wherever Jesus is, monitoring what he's doing, listening to what he's saying, because even though he obviously displays supernatural power, they're not certain if this supernatural power is of God or if it's of demonic deception, because Satan can, and has, by the way, given some people supernatural abilities for the sole purpose of derailing or deceiving. Many cults got started that way. So on the one hand, you have to commend them for being very careful and not just falling in love with Jesus because he can heal a man of some disease. But on the other hand, when that supernatural power starts to prove that he is the Messiah, that's when they should have realized who and what he was. For example, when he heals a man of a disease from a very long distance away from him, like the nobleman's son, only God could have done something like that. When the demon-possessed shriek in terror at being in the presence of him and scream, No, you're the son of the living God. Why are you here? To which Jesus says, Be silent. Come out of him. And then it does, proving that even demons must obey his voice. And the message that he preaches from town to town is not a cultic New Age system. It's biblical. It's straight from the Old Testament scriptures, fulfilling prophecies, building upon everything that was foretold to come, and adding to that what is still to come later on, all of it confirmed in the Old Testament. 
So on the one hand, we can't blame the religious leaders for being cautious, but we can blame them for being willfully blind. They knew the Old Testament, and they could have realized early on who this guy was, but they were blinded by their own arrogance, their own self-conceited ideas. When Jesus himself tried to correct them on their own views of doctrine that they had twisted throughout the centuries, he used common sense and flawless logic. But they still wouldn't let go of their own man-made interpretation of God's scripture. Now, folks, can you imagine being so blinded by your own unbending religious surety that you don't recognize God himself when he's standing right there in front of you? Especially when it was all prophetically foretold to happen with historical and geographical signposts to let you know. Individuals here and there who were faithful knew, like the two people who were waiting in the temple to see him when he was just a baby. Then you had the Magi from the east travel all the way to Bethlehem to see him only because of a handful of prophecies that they had been holding on to from Daniel several centuries ago. Then you had people like Matthew, a tax collector, Peter, a fisherman, the unnamed woman at the well. All of them knew in their hearts who this guy was. But the religious leaders, the educated scholars, the scribes, the Pharisees, the Sadducees, they were the ones who didn't get it. And my papa used to have a name for people like that. He called them educated fools. Of course, the Bible talks about people like that. It says, professing to be wise, they make simpletons of themselves. So you've got a whole year of all this going on, folks. And as that year passed, the fame and the public awareness of Jesus' miracles grew. And the concern of his popularity sticking in the craw of the religious leaders grew. So now, it's been a whole year since the last Passover festival that Jesus publicly started his ministry. It's the one-year anniversary, in a sense. He's back in Jerusalem again for the Passover festival, and it's also the Sabbath day. While he's there, he finds a man who's lame, and he heals him. He tells him to pick up his bed and walk. He does, and the religious leaders see him walking around with a sleeping mat over his shoulder and get angry because it's the Sabbath. Not supposed to do anything like that. That's work. So then they go seek out Jesus for healing this guy on the Sabbath. Healing is an act of work, too, according to them. And then the exchange between Jesus and these religious leaders gets recorded in John chapter 5, where Jesus really lets them have it. I mean, the whole last half of the chapter is Jesus putting these religious leaders in their place. And I mean, he hit them hard. He didn't try to explain to them who and what he was. He didn't try to bring them up to date, because he already knew that they were aware of his message and all the reports concerning him. It's been a whole year for them to figure things out. It's been a whole year since things got started. They've had plenty of time to investigate everything and figure out what was fact and what was rumor. These were educated Bible scholars. They should have known by now. It's been a whole year. They should know by now that this is the Son of God, that this is the prophesied Messiah. So instead of being repetitive and trying to explain to them, he accuses them of not accepting the truth of what they already know. He pulls out the big guns. And says, I have a witness that testified concerning me. It's the Father who sent me. And that's true. It happened a year ago at the Jordan crossing when he was baptized. A lot of people were there to see it and hear it. The sky opened up and the Father verbally testified out loud, audibly, for people to hear it. But if that wasn't enough, then he tells them that they have the Father's testimony from the scriptures concerning him. Jesus said, you diligently pour over the scriptures daily, searching for eternal life. But those very scriptures talk about me. Then Jesus steps way outside time, showing his ultimate knowledge of all human history, and tells them, I have come in my Father's name, and you will not receive me. But another will come in his own name, and him you will receive. He was talking about what will be Israel's initial acceptance of the Antichrist. But he hammers them even further. 
This is Jesus Christ, the Son of God, hammering not a bunch of pagan sinners, but the professional religious leaders of the time. He says, I know you, and you do not have the love of God in you. And even though the Father testifies concerning me, not one of you has given ear to his voice. Then he tells them, the Father has given the whole business of judging into the hands of the Son. But you don't have to worry about me judging against you. Don't think I will accuse you to the Father. There is one that already accuses you, and it is Moses, the very one whom you have built all of your trust. Now, folks, that was a real scathing indictment, because if you were a Pharisee, you were supposed to be a master of the first five books of Moses, the Torah. The law and everything about it came from the first five books of Moses. He was the biggest name in Jewish history, probably the most revered name in Jewish history, only next to Abraham. And Jesus tells them, I won't have to accuse you. Moses has already accused you. For if you had believed Moses, you would have believed me. For Moses wrote all about me. But if you don't believe and trust his writings, how then will you believe and trust my words? And that's where we left off last time, folks. The Passover festival is over, so now Jesus and his disciples are on their way back to Galilee. During the following journey, there is another discourse between Jesus and the Pharisees, and it's recorded by Matthew in Matthew chapter 12, verses 1 to 8, by Mark in Mark chapter 2, verses 23 to 28, and by Luke in Luke chapter 6, verses 1 to 5. It says, One Sabbath, while Jesus was passing through the fields of standing grain, his disciples were hungry, and it occurred that as they made their way, his disciples picked some of the spikes and ate of the grain, rubbing it out in their hands. And when the Pharisees saw it, they said to him, See there, your disciples are doing what is unlawful and not permitted on the Sabbath. Now, the first time I read this, folks, I thought they were upset because they were stealing somebody else's grain. But it turns out that one of the Jewish laws was that it was allowable it was permissible for a stranger to pass through a field and take some grain. This was all part of the culture, and it's laid out in the Old Testament, specifically Deuteronomy chapter 23. So what they did wasn't the problem for the Pharisees. It's when they did it that they were upset about. It was the Sabbath day. Well, Exodus chapter 20 says, remember the Sabbath day and keep it holy. Remember it, honor it, set it apart, and so forth. That's the Bible. But the religious leaders throughout the centuries defined it all the way down to the letter and kept adding to the definition of what it meant to remember the Sabbath day to the extent that there were only so many steps you could walk on that day. Anything more was considered working. You couldn't eat certain types of foods because depending on the chewing, it might be considered work. I mean, it really got absurd. So here, they're going through a field of standing grain. The disciples picked some of the spikes, which was perfectly legal in itself. And they ate of the grain, but the Pharisees had a fit. See here, your disciples are doing what is unlawful and not permitted on the Sabbath. Jesus said to them, Haven't you even read what David did when he was hungry and those who were with him? How he went into the house of God when Abiathar was the high priest and ate the sacred loaves of showbread set forth before God, which wasn't permitted or lawful for anyone to eat but the priests. And how he not only ate it himself, but also gave to those who were with him. Folks, that's in 1 Samuel chapter 21, verses 1 to 6, for those of you who want to look that up. By referencing that to the Pharisees as a defense for what they're doing, Jesus is condoning what David did. On the one hand, yeah, it was a violation of ceremonial procedure, but that's all it was a violation of. See, so you have God-ordained realities, and then you have man-ordained rituals that symbolize those realities. Big difference. The realities are real, but the symbolism is only symbolism. Do you ignore greater realities in the name of holding on to mere symbolism? 
That's sort of the point of Jesus' defense here. But there's another side to this defense. David was an anointed king. God himself anointed David as Israel's king when he was just a kid. So on the one hand, substance trumps symbolism. But just in case it doesn't, it certainly does when the one doing the trumping is a king anointed by God himself. Jesus is their anointed king. Now, they don't know it, but it doesn't change the fact that he is. The detailed regulations that the Pharisees have attached to the Sabbath day are mere man-made principles that have no substance. They are not of God's ordaining. So Jesus and his disciples are 100% guiltless. They're guiltless. The substance of the realities outweighs symbolism. But just in case they don't, the one in this case who's trumping the symbolism is God's anointed king of Israel, Jesus Christ. Who ordained the Sabbath, in other words, folks? Not the Pharisees. God did in Genesis chapter 2 and Exodus chapter 20. Now at this point, Mark and Luke report that Jesus told them, The Sabbath was made for man. Man was not made for the Sabbath. The Son of Man is Lord of the Sabbath. What a statement to make to a bunch of religious leaders. You know, these are the people who are supposed to be the ones who represent the God of the Bible to the people. They've been doing it for centuries, and now God himself, in the person of Jesus Christ, is here. But instead of being ambassadors for him, they're constantly in the way. You know you're not representing God properly to the people if when God himself shows up, you're telling him that God doesn't approve. I mean, you know, come on. They've completely missed out on the whole purpose of the Sabbath. God established the Sabbath day as a day of rest for the benefit of man, not to be a burden on him. So Jesus, being God in the flesh, the prophesied Son of Man spoken of in Daniel and Isaiah, the Son of God anointed by the Father to be king, he corrects the error of these religious leaders' interpretation of what the Sabbath is all about. And he uses flawless logic. I could have done the same thing. I, Joshua P. Allen, I'm not an anointed king. I'm just a regular guy. But I could have told them that the Sabbath was made for man, and man wasn't made for the Sabbath. Because that's biblically sound and logically flawless in its reason. But just in case they don't agree with that flawless logic, he then says, the Son of Man is Lord of the Sabbath. You know, kind of like when our parents told us when we were kids, it's because I said so. I'm Lord of the Sabbath. I made it for man. I did not make man for it. You've got it all wrong. I'll tell you why, so you'll understand. I'll give you the example of David from 1 Samuel 21. There's your reference. There's your scripture to back it up. Now, here's the reason and logic. The Sabbath was made for man. Man was not made for the Sabbath. There's your reason and logic. But if you reject the logic, if you reject the reason, if you reject the scripture reference from 1 Samuel 21, then accept it because I said so. The Son of Man is Lord of the Sabbath. Don't tell me what the Sabbath is. I invented the Sabbath. I etched the fourth commandment in stone when you were merely a speck of DNA in the loins of your distant ancestors 2,000 years ago. You know, <laughs> Matthew adds a little extra information from this discourse and reports that Jesus also said, Haven't you read in the law that on the Sabbath the priests working in the temple actually violate the sanctity of the Sabbath itself and yet are held guiltless? But I tell you, something greater and more exalted and more majestic than the temple is here. If only you have known what the saying means, I desire mercy rather than sacrifice, you would not have condemned the guiltless, for the Son of Man is Lord, even of the Sabbath. Now this next episode follows immediately after the last one. Jesus goes into their synagogue to teach them, but the Pharisees have a trap laid here for him. 
And this episode is recorded by Matthew in chapter 12, verses 9 to 14, Mark chapter 3, verses 1 to 6, and Luke chapter 6, verses 6 to 11. It says, Jesus went into their synagogue and taught, and a man was there who had a withered hand. Luke reports that it was his right hand. The Greek of Mark's report suggests that it was the result of either an accident or a disease. And the scribes and the Pharisees kept watching Jesus closely to see whether he would actually cure him on the Sabbath in order that they might get some ground for a formal accusation against him. Matthew reports that they came right out and asked him openly and said, Is it lawful or allowable to cure people on the Sabbath days? You know, they are putting it to him like a question that you might hear from someone who actually respects him as a teacher. Is it lawful or allowable to cure people on the Sabbath days? But right after that quote, Matthew points out that it's a trap. They're asking him, knowing what he'll say, because they've already heard about what happened elsewhere. You know, controversy travels fast, and they asked him, Matthew reports, in order that they might accuse him. But Luke reports that Jesus was aware all along of their thoughts, and he said to the man with the withered hand, Come and stand here in the midst. (laughs) I love this. And he arose and stood there. Then Jesus said to them, the Pharisees, I ask you, is it lawful and right on the Sabbath to do good or to do evil? See, he answers their question with a question. They asked him, is it lawful or allowable to cure people on the Sabbath days? So he answers their question with a question. Well, I ask you, is it lawful and right on the Sabbath to do good or to do evil? To save life or to destroy it? But they kept silent. And Jesus glanced around the room, looking at all of them as they kept silent. Mark reports that he did so with vexation and anger, grieved at the hardening of their hearts. Then Matthew reports that Jesus said, Which man is there among you if he has only one sheep and it falls into a pit on the Sabbath, will not take hold of it and lift it out? How much better and of more value is a man than a sheep? So it is lawful and it is allowable to do good on the Sabbath days. Then he said to the man, Stretch out your hand. And the man stretched it out, and it was restored just like the other one. Then Luke reports that the Pharisees were filled with senseless rage and a lack of understanding. Then Luke and Matthew both report that they consulted with each other about how to do away with him. Mark reports they immediately went out and held an official consultation with the Herodians against him and discussed how they might devise a plan to put him to death. Absolutely nuts, folks. Now, there's somewhat of an ordeal here that takes place right after this event in the synagogue that only Matthew and Mark report. The news of Jesus healing people on the Sabbath was being spread by the Pharisees out of contempt, but the people were spreading the news even faster. Wait till you see what's waiting for Jesus as he leaves the area. This event is reported in Matthew chapter 12, verses 15 to 21, and Mark chapter 3, verses 7 to 12. Matthew reports that being aware of the conspiracy among the Pharisees, Jesus went away from there, and many people followed him, and he cured all of them. But that's Matthew's extremely short and sweet summary of this, where he says many people followed him. He isn't kidding. What Matthew called many, Mark called a great throng. It says, quote, Jesus retired with his disciples to the lake, and a great throng from Galilee followed him, also from Judea, and from Jerusalem and Idumea, and from beyond the Jordan, and from about Tyre and Sidon, a vast multitude who had heard all the many things that he was doing. So this isn't a couple dozen. This is probably what sounds like it may have been several thousand people. 
I mean, they're coming from all over the place. And it was at this point that Mark reports that Jesus told his disciples to have a little boat in constant readiness for him because of the crowd, lest they press hard upon him and crush him. For he had healed so many that all who had distressing bodily diseases kept falling upon him and pressing upon him in order that they might touch him. And the spirits, the unclean ones, as often as they might see him, fell down before him and kept screaming out, You are the Son of God! Folks, this was a mess. Now, in other passages of Scripture, we've already seen Jesus heal people. Jesus touches them, whatever it is that's hurting them, be it a disease, a crippled limb, a mental disorder, or even demonic possession. Jesus deals with it with very little effort, and the problem is gone. No magical ceremony, no long list of ingredients for some supernatural recipe for a cure. He just touches them and says, be well, and it's done. Kind of like when God said, let there be light, in Genesis chapter 1. The very next verse after that says, and there was light. No struggle, no work, no process. God says it, it's done. And we find out that the faith of the one being healed makes it work even faster. People are no longer asking for healings. They're reaching out to touch him, and just touching him, they're being healed. So you've got this mob of people from all over the country surrounding Jesus, pressing up on him, tackling him to get just one pinky finger touching him to be cured of whatever it is that's bothering them. And this whole scenario is vicious because Mark reports that Jesus said to his disciples, get the boat ready and keep it ready, you know, just in case. So they're pressed up on the shore. The whole crowd is surrounding him for healing. And it says it got to the point where people were leaping up over the crowd, falling down on top of Jesus to touch him. Imagine the people climbing on top of each other to get over the top to fall down on him. But what really impresses me as I read this and imagine it in my mind is that included with this mob of sick and crippled people are people who are demon-possessed. Now, every time when Jesus is confronted with a demon-possessed man, the same thing happens every time. The person who is possessed runs up to Jesus for the cure, but the demon inside is struck with sudden shock and fear. Every time they scream out, It's the Son of God! Yeah, no kidding. Big surprise. So what? Why do they say that every single time? It's because they're not expecting him. They were expecting him as Daniel saw him coming down from the clouds with the mighty trumpet blast and the lightning crack in the sky from the east to the west. They know that that's when it's all over for them. No more possessions, no more oppression, no more hidden deception. It's to the bottomless pit for them. So imagine they're living inside their victim, thinking they're safe, because it isn't the end of the world yet. There's no Antichrist in power, no 70th week of Daniel going on. And then, bam, there he is. What's he doing here? Oh, no, it's you. It's the Son of God. You kind of get the feel that they're so shocked that they're wondering, is this it for us? Is this some sneak attack that we weren't prepared for, that we didn't know about? Is this an ambush? In another passage of Scripture, it says a demon-possessed man said, if you come to destroy us, we know who you are, the Holy One of God. You know, their reasoning seems to be, why else would you be here if not to destroy us? That's kind of the feel you get from their statements. Notice they never make any threats. They don't shout obscenities against him. They don't spit on him. No, they cry out in terror. There's no contest between them and the Son of God. But I bring all that up to explain to you why this whole scenario is so fascinating for me. Because it paints a picture, in my mind, that I've never seen in a painting by da Vinci. I've never seen this portrayed in a Sunday school workbook or a church play or a religious movie. Here we have Jesus and his disciples at the seashore, surrounded by thousands of people who aren't standing in line waiting to be cured. They are tackling him and tackling each other to get to him. 
So with all that in mind, look at how Mark reports this. Look at it. It says, Jesus told his disciples to have a little boat in constant readiness for him because of the crowd, lest they press hard upon him and crush him. For he had healed so many that all who had distressing bodily diseases kept falling upon him and pressing upon him in order that they might touch him. But here's the part that makes me laugh. It says, And the spirits, the unclean ones, as often as they might see him, fell down before him and kept screaming out, You are the Son of God! So I imagine this scenario, with all these bodies in a huge pile, tangled up in a chaotic mess, leaping up, falling down, arms flailing about, reaching out, and the sound of all the voices saying, Jesus! 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 And then intermingled with that, every 30 seconds or so, you hear, It's the Son of God! It's the Son of God! No, it's the Son of God! No, but in spite of all this mess, Jesus is hanging in there. He told the disciples to keep the boat ready, but he hung in there and healed every one of them. And that's what impresses me even more. He stuck it out and healed all of them. That's what Matthew reported. But concerning the demons who kept screaming, No, it's the Son of God! Matthew and Mark both report that Jesus strictly charged them and sharply warned them not to make him publicly known. Mark says he did so with the threat of severe penalty. We've talked about that before. Even though what they're saying is true, Jesus is the Son of God, he silences them because, number one, Jesus didn't give them permission to speak. But mainly it's because Jesus does not want demons to be the source of testimony concerning who he is. That is the honor of Matthew, Mark, Luke, John, Peter, and all the rest, and all those who choose to follow him. He's waiting for their testimony, not the testimony of demons. Then Matthew writes, This was in fulfillment of what was spoken by the prophet Isaiah. Behold, my servant whom I have chosen, my beloved in whom my soul is well pleased and has found its delight, I will put my spirit upon him, and he shall proclaim and show forth justice to the nations. He will not strive or wrangle or cry out loud, nor will anyone hear his voice in the streets. A bruised reed he will not break, and a smoldering, dimly burning wick he will not quench till he brings justice and a just cause to victory. And in and on his name will the Gentiles set their hopes. Folks, he's quoting Isaiah chapter 42, verses 1 to 4. Now, this next event involves Jesus selecting for himself 12 special messengers, 12 apostles. Luke's investigative report records this in Luke chapter 6, verses 12 to 16. It says, Now in those days it occurred that he went up into the mountain to pray and spent the whole night in prayer to God. And when it was day, he summoned his disciples and selected from them twelve, whom he named apostles, which means special messengers. They were Simon, who he named Peter, his brother Andrew, James, John, and Philip, and Bartholomew, and Matthew, and Thomas, and James, son of Alphaeus, and Simon, who was called the Zealot. And this was not Simon Peter, this is a different Simon. And then a man named Judas, son of James, not the one who betrayed him, a different Judas. And then Judas Iscariot, who became a traitor. Now, there's a couple of important notes here. There were 12 tribes of Israel, and now Jesus is selecting 12 apostles. This is kingdom-related, folks. There are only 12 apostles. We also call them disciples, meaning followers of Christ, but a number of people can be followers of Christ. I'm a follower of Christ, so you could call me a disciple. But a special messenger of Christ is called an apostle. But from a political perspective concerning the kingdom, 
These are 12 special messengers that Jesus himself selected being the king of Israel who was prophesied to sit on David's throne. That hasn't happened yet. It's prophesied to happen. Also, Jesus is equipping them with the ability to do what he's doing now. He's giving them the power to do what he's been doing, the power of healing, the power of casting out demons. Now, be careful. You don't fall into the trap of believing that all of us are apostles because we're not. Jesus is the one who appoints those positions. Jesus is the king of a literal political kingdom which will be on the planet Earth after the Antichrist and Satan are dealt with. Don't mysticize this and try to make out like, well, we're all apostles. No, yes and no. And more no than yes. Be careful. This is specifically tied to Israel. Twelve tribes of Israel, twelve appointed apostles, appointed by the king himself. Now, don't feel bad. Our king has jobs and positions for all of us that are reserved for that time, whenever it is. And only he knows what those positions and jobs will be in the future. During the millennial reign, during the kingdom age, be it in heaven or the Davidic kingdom here on the earth, all of that gets into an even deeper debate about the differences between what the Bible means when it uses the phrase kingdom of God versus kingdom of heaven. They're not the same thing, but we'll get into all that later. The point is, don't assume that we're all apostles. No, we're not. Jesus is the king. He decides those positions. And there are only twelve. And those positions have been filled by the names just listed. Of course, the one who will ultimately betray Jesus is replaced later, but the point still remains. Those positions are filled. Mark's record of this is in Mark chapter 3, verses 13 to 19. And it says, And he went up on the hillside and called to him those whom he wanted and chose, and they came to him. And he appointed twelve to continue to be with him, and that he might send them out to preach as apostles or special messengers, and to have authority and power to heal the sick and to drive out demons. They were Simon, and he surnamed him Peter, James, son of Zebedee, and John, the brother of James, and he surnamed them Sons of Thunder, and Andrew and Philip and Bartholomew, also known as Nathaniel, and Matthew and Thomas and James, son of Alphaeus, and Thaddeus, also known as Judas, but not Judas Iscariot, and Simon, also called the Zealot, and Judas Iscariot, he who eventually betrays him. Now, folks, what follows this is the famous Sermon on the Mount, which is why I'm going to go ahead and close this session of Founding Word here, because I want to devote some special attention and time towards the Sermon on the Mount. It's in Matthew chapter 5, starting in verse 1, and goes all the way to chapter 7, verse 29. And I want to cover each individual piece of this sermon in great detail. I want to look at all the many faceted sides of what Jesus is saying, and we just won't be able to do it here. So until next week, folks, we're out of here. Take care.